I'm my loyal listeners. Today, I wanted to give you a little bit of good news. Um, if you put in podcast 35, it's a code that'll work on my site through the end of April, and you can take advantage of some of my greatest and best items. The whole site is available to you. So I know shopping might seem crazy at this time, but that's how we pay the bills. That's how we keep all of our employees employed and stick around as a business. So I definitely and always appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. And today's guest is the co-founder of Bobble Bar, Daniela Yakubovsky. We talk about everything from how incredible business school can be for a founder to what she does to stay sane with her co-founder and how she relaxes. Take a listen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I would love to let our listeners know, I'm sure they all know what Bobble Bar is, because how could you not? But for those that don't know, what is Bobble Bar? Yeah, so Bobble Bar aims to reinvent how women play with fashion, experiment with style through the best assortment of on-trend accessories out there in the market, everything from fashion jewelry all the way up to solid gold and diamonds. So I feel like I see Bobble Bar everywhere. Thank um, you. Yeah. And what impresses me is like, you obviously have what seems like a huge company, but I'd love to start with like, when did you have the idea? And then how did you grow it into this huge, this huge, amazing success? Um, So my co-founder, Amy, and I have actually known one another for a really, really long time. A lot of people think that we met in business school, but we actually met in investment banking training. And someone said, you guys have the same birthday, which is August 16th. You should throw a party together. Um, And we did. It was epic. We've been best friends ever since. And then we happened to end up at business school together, same school, same year, which was really fortuitous and and just great timing and and luck as many things in life are. Um, The summer between our first and second year at school, we were at Saks Fifth Avenue shopping for shoes. And we just started having a really casual conversation about how, you know, at that time we were working in finance and had nice finance salaries and could afford really nice things and talked about how we wouldn't hesitate to go to Saks Fifth Avenue and spend a certain amount of money on a great pair of shoes or a great handbag, but would never really go down to the first floor and spend, you know, huge amounts of money on a cool statement necklace or a great pair of earrings. And I think that for us was the initial sort of aha moment. You know, we loved accessories and we loved what they did for your outfit and your wardrobe and what you were able to do when dressing up. Um, But we felt like there was a little bit of a void in the market in terms of the right design at the right price point. So we decided that we we really wanted to dig in. Um, It was at the time a very sort of, you know, big picture idea. I think we didn't totally know exactly how we wanted to approach what we wanted to do. What was so lucky is that we had that idea right before our second year of business school. So we were really able to use our second year of school to just do a ton of consumer testing, field study research, and essentially turn our whole class schedule into a big souped up project where we kind of just kept chipping away at the ideas that we were having until it started to look like 
something real. And how did you know in those days, like where to source and get your supply chain from? How did you do all that? Because I remember, I mean, I think I started my company earlier than you did, but yeah. like Google wasn't available. It was like a catalog that you had to order in yeah. the mail. <laughs> so how did you know how to like unleash a supply chain that would get you those types of price points? I mean, it, it took us a, a pretty long time to dig around and, and find the right folks. And I think that we were really lucky and bolstered by the fact that we had a story that people were excited to be a part of. So at that time, we we were meeting with um, a lot of folks whose parents had started companies abroad and they were first generation, you know, kind of starting to take over the company for their parents here in the U.S. And we're starting to see some of the new, you know, fashion brands and fashion companies that were coming onto the scene and were really making a splash and saw that there was an opportunity for, for a lot of growth if you found somebody who had, a, who had a good idea and was ready to execute on it. So we did a tremendous amount of research meeting with folks, as I'm sure you know, one of the things that was really challenging in the beginning is the industry can be pretty private and closed off. And I think folks at first were very reticent to open their doors and and chat with us. You know, in the early days, one of the things that really helped is we said, hey, we're two students from Harvard Business School and we're, you know, doing a study about the jewelry industry and we'd love to learn a little bit more about how it works. And that really, I think, opened people up to chatting with us, yeah. you know, and then after we had sort of built a little bit of a relationship, we were able to be like, well, wait a second, we actually have an idea. <laughs> how, do, how do you feel about starting this? Um, and we're really lucky, a lot of those folks, and again, I think those kind of, you know, first generation children who essentially took over their parents' companies were really excited to kind of build with us. And, and a lot of those folks are still with us today. Wow. And did you have to raise money when you launched? So when we first launched, Amy and I actually self-funded okay. um, for a little bit. Because which, of your of your cushy financial salaries. Well, we had just come out of giving <laughs> literally all of it to business school. So we took like the scrap that was left and we were like, let's try it. You know, I think we just really believed in what we were doing and we were excited about it. Um, and I think we didn't feel you know, comfortable fundraising yet, because I don't know that we knew exactly what the story was. And truthfully, I think we also wanted to get some learnings of our own and, and do it on our own and see how far we could take it ourselves before raising external capital. That's refreshing. I must say, uh, with all the interviews I've done, anyone that has gone to business school, like comes out and is, a, is so good at building a business. And then you see designers that like, like the podunks, like me and some of the people in the CFDA, like struggling along you know, as the artist side who never did the business school. And yeah. I just wish they would offer, they would offer both of these courses because everyone is f fucking solid who comes out of business school. Yeah. Like there's no like, <laughs> how do I cost this out or, you know? Well, I think it's pretty that impressive. There are, I think there are different areas. I think Amy and I are really lucky that we had a finance background. And yeah. when it came to looking at business models, building out the financials, having an understanding for how that could scale and what it would look like. That was something we were really familiar with. Yep. And then there were a million things in the industry. We had no idea what we were doing. Like what? A merchandising. Right. I mean- can you, can you explain what that means for our listeners? Sure. Um, so- our merchandising team, which is now incredible and run by wonderful professional people, uh, spend a lot of time working on our product strategy. So where we're going with the product, what are going to be our new product launches, what are the stories that are you know, really going to drive our business over the future. Yeah. They work really closely with our design team. And then they also have to be really thoughtful about what our product strategy is across our different distribution channels. So we sell through bobblebar.com, but we also sell through a really large 
large wholesale network like Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's, as Rebecca Minkoff does as well. So I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Um, So they spend a lot of time thinking about what our product strategy will be across all of those different distribution channels. And then within the channels that we own, like abobblebar.com, for example, they're really responsible for thinking about how a consumer would take in the product and move through the product. So a really, I heard someone describe it this way and I thought it was so perfect, which was think of your website as a store with shelves and the merchandisers are stocking the shelves no differently than they would be stocking an actual store and thinking about what products it's where they do the same thing with our website. Yeah. And I must say having uh, a merchandiser on on my side is extraordinarily helpful because it isn't, as a designer, sometimes you can get lost in the fantasy and they bring you back to reality. You're like, totally. this, this will not sell. It's really pretty, but no one's going <laughs> to buy it. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. I'll change that. Exactly. What impresses me, and I feel like a lot of designers or people who are starting out, and I give this advice, I say, you know, pick one thing, you know, one niche, but you've been able to span everything from costume, and as you said, fine. How have you managed to span that that business? Because I feel like a lot of people have to pick one thing um, and stick with it. So I think that there are a lot of folks who have built really extraordinary businesses on a specific aesthetic or design or a look that they're really, really known for and have then taken that and extended that to other categories. One of the things we've really tried to do differently is, you know, I don't know that we necessarily have or have ever aspired to have a signature look so much as we aim to really bring folks you know, what we think are the most important trends in design at the moment. And I think that that has had a lot of legs and a lot of room for expansion across a huge range of categories. So we really saw that there was a natural inclination for folks to want to buy more from us from a material perspective pretty early on um, when we started introducing our personalized pieces like monograms and nameplates, which we did probably like two years into the business, um, just because We think it's an important trend in accessories. We know that folks love to wear pieces with meaning and pieces that have personal significance to them. And and a lot of times that comes with customization. And as part of that product, we really started to expand some of our material offerings. Let people choose within a classic nameplate, do you want gold-plated brass or would you like to buy a solid gold version that's never going to tarnish and you can kind of wear forever. Um, the consumer's really smart. And we've always really known that we wanted to be able to offer a wider range. I think it's about being transparent in what they're getting for their money yeah. and what they should expect to get for their money. And I think that's allowed us to really kind of expand beyond where we started. So I'd love to explore the relationship between you and your co-founder. Yeah. You're still best friends. Yep. You're smiling as you say this. <laughs> There's no like, oh, I got to prepare for that. Like sometimes when people say, what's it like to work with your brother? I'm like, well, we fight often. <laughs> um, so what is it like and what do you do when you disagree? Yeah. I mean, as you know, working with somebody that you're that close with is extremely challenging. I think that the world is littered with stories of it not working, which is probably why ironically, and I'm, I'm kind of smiling as you ask the question, because I actually think, and we've been doing this for quite a few years now, I would say the question I probably get the most hands down is like, how does it work? (laughs) You know, what's it like? It's honestly, it's wonderful. Um, We love working together. We actually still sit next to each other. That's so great. On an open floor, (laughs) not in offices. Um, We like being there to kind of run ideas by each other, you know, but it's also, you know, it's challenging to work that closely with somebody that you are that close with. I think there are a couple of things that set us up for success personally. Um, One is that we met each other in a work environment. 
we knew each other, not necessarily in a social environment. So even though we're extremely close friends, it's not like that was the only background we knew. We, right. we knew how the other would handle stress. We knew how the other would handle work. I think the other really important piece is that we both really gravitate towards different things. We have complementary skill sets. I don't think at any point in the business has either of us felt necessarily territorial over specific areas or work product or projects or things. You know, we really share well um, and we know how to disagree and come back to the table and not hate one another, which I think is very, very important. Um, I think that a lot of people start businesses with folks that they don't know how to argue with. Right. You don't know how to argue together. It's going to be really hard to to run a business. I think that's a really good point. And I think that some of you know, the issues maybe my brother and I had is we're arguing as brother and sister, right? Mm, Not as business partners. Yeah. And so you you act in a way that's just like, fuck you, basically, instead of like, <laughs> we have to come to some sort of resolution. But totally. when you're brother and, si- and sister, you don't really have to come no. to that resolution. No, you're like, you're kind of stuck with me by blood. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be at the Thanksgiving dinner table together. Exactly. So I'd love to also talk about like, what were what was the first big challenge that you guys faced and how did you overcome it or not? Yeah. I think one of the first really big ones is when you're thrown into something like starting a company and you've you've never done it before. I think not really having an expectation for what it's going to be um, and not really understanding, I think, the veracity with which you experience highs and lows within the same day is something I know for me personally, it took a little while for me to not only get comfortable with that, but figure out how to not let it affect my day so much. Um, Because in, you know, in the early days, I mean, you, you know, you get it all and you get it all fast. So we would have like our best moment and then like the worst possible news ever, like an hour later. Yes, And I think that emotional roller coaster can really, really take a toll. I also think then when you compound that with people who are very hardworking and type A and don't naturally give themselves breaks. It's like a little bit of a recipe for just kind of beating yourself up. Um, and that really takes a toll. So I feel like I'm looking into the mirror as we speak. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. I also think that in general, we have this culture where people really love to brag about like, oh, I worked an 80 hour week. I have 500 emails in my inbox. I have this, I have that. And it's- I'm working so hard I'm on working my book a, deal. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm just like, God, if it's taking you 80 hours a week, you are just being just straight up inefficient. Right. Like I would like to brag about getting my list done in like 35 hours a week. Do you? No. Okay. But I, <laughs> dare to dream. <laughs> Tell me how. Dare to dream. I mean, I still try, but that's what I aspire to. Yeah. And I think that we should all aspire to get our work done more efficiently and faster than necessarily sort of glorify this idea of, oh, I slept in the office. It's just, I have so much to do. Totally. Um, Because it's just not healthy. No, it's not healthy. And then you're just cranky and you have, and then you have to focus on self-care, which should just be part of your routine. Totally. And it drives creativity. And I think it's so important, especially in our industry, to have that time to just like be left alone and clear your head and, and think. So how have you managed to, maybe not a 35 hour week, but how have you managed to eke out I don't know, 45 hour a week? Yeah. We try to be, I, we try to look for little areas of efficiency wherever we can. Um, you know, I think it's really about setting very clear guidelines and goals for the team that you work with and, and make it clear what your expectations are to try to limit we rework 
as much as possible, if at all. I also think that it's important to set boundaries. So what's been really interesting is that when we started Bobble Bar, you know, Amy and I were, I don't want to, I don't want to age us, but we were much younger. We didn't have families. We were single. Um, And now when we look at the team, you know, most of the senior leadership on our team have children, are married. We all have things that we want to do, you know, Amy wants to go home and put her kids to bed. She doesn't want to be cranking in the office till 8, 9 p.m. So I think it's about setting boundaries to say, listen, guys, I'm going to leave at XYZ time because I want to go home and be with my small children and put them to bed. And I'll be back online at nine o'clock. So it'd be great if we could have X, Y, and Z routed by then and I'll review it and then we'll get everything kind of buttoned up. So I think setting some of those boundaries and being clear about the things that are important to you is something we we started to do a little later, but I wish we had done earlier. I'm hoping that as there are more female founders, more companies will act that way and it won't just be this like work till you're you're dead. Seriously. Right. <laughs> I found myself texting with my social media manager last night. It was seven. And I was like, I was like, let's stop texting. We can, yeah. we can figure this out in the morning. And she's like, that's so kind of you. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, <laughs> totally. It just, yeah. It just changes the dynamic. I was I like, agree. I want to be with my kids. I don't want to be texting you about a, an image that's going up in the morning. Yeah. We could figure it out then. So what do you do to lead your team? Uh, did that come naturally to you? Has that been a challenge? How big is your team? Yeah. So our team now is about 65 folks here in New York. We have our headquarters um, actually just around the corner from where we are currently sitting. And then we also have our warehouse facility in New Jersey where we do pick, pack, and ship for all of our own orders. Um, So that's a separate group of folks. You own your own warehouse? We do. That is really smart. (laughs) Thank you. It's been uh, hard, you know, know, honestly. If you want to take on my warehousing, I could give it to you. (laughs) (laughs) We will. We'd be happy to. We, you know, it took us, uh, it took a while to get up and running. Um, It's great to have it here. It's amazing to have the flexibility of doing your own warehouse. Yeah. It's, as you know, it's a whole nother bag of tricks um, that you have to figure out. It's challenging. Yeah. But it's also really nice to be able to control it and move inventory around and, and be flexible and nimble in that way. But in terms of leadership, yes, you know, it's so interesting. In previous roles, I'd had the opportunity to manage one or two people, um, obviously nothing close to the numbers that, that we're managing today. Um, and I think there were elements that felt natural. And then there were a lot of elements that really, really didn't, um, you know, and we had to learn and I really had to learn along the way. Um, I think that the, you know, one of the areas that I certainly have struggled with in the past is finding the right balance of being direct and honest while not feeling like I'm being a total asshole Yeah, and recognizing that by being direct and honest, that's how you avoid being a total asshole, right? right? Because you have to give people honest feedback. Yeah. It should be direct. It, it doesn't need to have emotion involved. You can give direct feedback and say what your expectations are without feeling like you're being a jerk or mean. Um, And that's only going to help everybody get better and the team get better and for you to ultimately have the right product delivered. But that was something I really struggled with um, in the beginning. I still struggle with like if, like I I had an employee who just started and I saw like her first week at 5.50, she was in her workout leggings. And I was like, hmm, (laughs) when do I say something about how inappropriate that is on your first week on the job to be like ready to bounce at six and you've already changed into your soul cycle gear, you know? And I still hesitate like, can I say something? Or like, if you went to lunch for two hours, like still today, I want to be like, our policy is an hour. (laughs) I don't know where you went for two hours. I'd love to go to lunch for two hours. 
but I, I think it's better to say something. It's funny. We've been talking about this a, a lot recently. I feel like, you know, Amy and I grew up in investment banking, which, you know, I would argue is a, is a office where people are very direct yes. <laughs> and extremely upfront about what they're thinking. But I'm really grateful because I got phenomenal training. Yeah. And I feel like I got phenomenal training, not just in terms of the actual work product that I was creating, but I got great training about just how to be a good employee. Right. Like what are just some of the unspoken things that you should sort of know when you're coming up in an organization? Right. Things that I think it when folks come into the workforce and they aren't properly trained, you don't automatically think of what your what that behavior communicates. So I'm really grateful for that training. And I feel like it would behoove us all to give that to the the folks that work for us because, totally. you know, I think it's important that everybody kind of have that training. So you're how many years into Bobble Bar? Nine. Wow. Okay. Nine. Today I feel like the trend is like make it big, sell it, <laughs> do something else or just go off and into the sunset. Like do you guys have plans? Is it something you want to like keep doing for a long time? Yeah. I mean, we're having fun. I think what's been really unique is we kind of came up in the era of, you know, venture-backed, direct-to-consumer brands. So I think people sometimes automatically think of us as that, even though we're really not a direct-to-consumer brand. We're just, we're a brand. Direct-to-consumer is a portion of what we do, but we also have a really rich wholesale business. We have a completely separate brand called Sugar Fix by Bobble Bar that's available at Target. So I think what's been sort of interesting is we grew up in that space, but I think we've been running the business more like a traditional, you know, sort of consumer brand, at least when it comes to distribution and how we think about reaching the customer. Um, so we're really lucky that we have a great, you know, set of folks around the table who love what we're doing. And, and we're all excited to just kind of keep going and keep building. We're still having fun. We're still finding lots of new challenges and things that keep us excited and motivated. And even as I think about 2020 and 2021 and some of the bigger things that we're working on, we still get like giddy and excited. And 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 I, I think until that goes away, and I think as long as we continue to feel that joy for what we're doing, we're, we're excited to just kind of keep going. That's also so refreshing. Thank you. <laughs> so what has been something recently? So you spoke about like what was hard early on and I still yeah. feel like it's hard. What you said is it still affects me every day. Like the high, I said the highest highs and the lowest lows. Yeah. And if you hit me at a low right before I go to like an event and then someone pays me a compliment, I'm like, I feel like a fucking fake, right? Because yep. like, you have done such great things with your brand. I'm like, you have no idea the news <laughs> I just got. You don't know the struggle. <laughs> um, what is What have been things recently, nine years in, like, you know, is it growth? Is it, you know, staying relevant? Is it dealing with the wholesale apocalypse? Like what's been, <laughs> what's been something that's been harder than you imagined? Yeah, I think one of the things that's been harder that, that I certainly wasn't expecting, I don't know that anyone was expecting, is, you know, as I think the marketing channels have evolved over the past couple of years and as social media has become more and more and more important, I think we're all spending substantially more time on social channels because it's obviously very important just to have an understanding of where the market's going and and what folks are doing, what they're 
buying and talking about and consuming and, and reading and, and keeping a finger on the pulse of what's relevant. But in the same way that I think that social media can drive people feeling insecure and uncertain of their own personal lives, I think it can sim- similarly drive those same feelings when you run a business. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to have a sign in our office that I loved. Um, it said it was our like office three years ago. So I actually, we need to figure out where the sign went because we've moved. But it said, comparison will kill you. And I think that's such a great and valuable sentiment, which is it's important, obviously, to be benchmarking and and certainly watching, you know, what your community is doing and what they're resonate, what's resonating with them, what they're liking, what they want from from you and from other brands. Um, but I think when we get into this place of constantly comparing ourselves to other people's successes, what other people are accomplishing, and it can drive that feeling of, oh, well, we didn't, we didn't accomplish that. We yeah. didn't have that. Um, I think it can get you into a really dangerous place. Um, so I think that sometimes can be a bit of a challenge is where do you sort of draw the line and put the blinders on and say, I want to be aware of what's going on in the market and I want to be aware of what everyone else is doing. But I also need to remember to take a step back and have the sense of self and the confidence in what we're doing as a company to know that our path is is different and also okay, yeah. right? There aren't winners and losers. There can be multiple successes and success can have can look like a lot of different things. But I think when you're in the moment and you're you're watching everybody else have have big, big wins, I think it's natural to kind of feel like, why didn't we do that? Why didn't we think of that? Oh God, what are we gonna do? And then if you're Jewish, like we are, <laughs> there's a whole you other t- level of neuroticness. Oh, there's just, a whole other level of And you get out the whip and you flagellate yourself, right? <laughs> it's been ingrained literally since what birth. What happened to us? I don't even know. I really don't <laughs> even know. What is this thing that we've been raised for? I'm like, my brother and I are so, we do this more, but then we really just really get in there with the, with oh. the self-beating up. Oh, my, so my husband who is not Jewish, literally his most c- common phrase he uses with me is like, I do not know how you manage to murder yourself like this <laughs> on such a regular basis. Like, were you, did you like train at a young age? I was like, <laughs> yes, honey, I did. It's in our DNA. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> so speaking of husband, um, how do you shut off? I, I love my husband deeply. He has always been really, since I've known him, ahead of like the things that would be big before they've been big. So like we were drinking celery juice daily, like a year and a half ago. Did it help? Immensely. Really? And for the record, it tastes disgusting. Like it's like I, he would make fun of me because I would hold my nose and like choke it down, but like made a massive difference on everything. Wow. And then like seven months ago, he came home so pissed off and he was like, I can't find celery anywhere because Kim Kardashian tweeted about it. He was like, I went to four Whole Foods. I went to three Trader Joe's. I even subjected myself to a fair way. Zero celery, like zero (laughs) celery. So like he's usually been kind of ahead of ahead of the curve. Um, So I feel like that's resulted in the things that we do, I think are a little left of center, but really work for us. And I love them. So I really love flotation tanks, sensory deprivation. They're really good. It's just a great sort of forced meditation moment. Um, I try to just sit and meditate in my living room. It is hard. I kind of need a pod that will shut out the world to sort of help that moment along. I'm also a really huge fan of acupuncture. I have an acupuncturist that I really love. Love that. Similar kind of vibe, right? Sort of helps you zone out, but not 
necessarily fall asleep. I think it just really helps you kind of meditate and get in a good headspace. Yeah. Um, so all of those things. And then when in doubt, we also collect wine. So that's there as well as needed. Love a good bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> There's two questions I'd like to ask everybody. Yeah. Um, what would we be surprised to know about you? It can be funny or embarrassing or oh. not? I have no sense of smell. What? Yeah. I can ha- you taste things? So, so it's really impacted and limited my sense of taste. I had a head injury, I'm fine, uh, a couple, like six years ago. Okay. And after that, my sense of smell is like 90% gone. Whoa. Which people are, and, and for the record, the people who are like nearest and dearest to me forget this all the time. They're like, like, here, smell this. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, it smells terrible. And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'll tell you, it's easier to live in New York in the summer if you have no sense of smell. Most definitely. Or change <laughs> your friend's diaper, <laughs> yeah. right? Your friend's baby's diaper. Totally. Like if we're cooking, I'm always the onion chopper because right. like I don't cry. Wow. No, zero impact. Okay. But you can taste. You've evolved. I figured out the things that register more on the tongue than in the nose. Okay. Um, and I feel like the way that I've eaten has adjusted. So for example, like I always liked spicy food, but now I like like mind numbingly hot spicy food. Okay. Cause it, you know, when you think about the things that register on the tongue, like sweet, salty, spicy, sour. Yep. I've always had a sweet tooth and I've always loved spicy. I've never really liked sour. Um, but I feel like now I go towards like the more extreme end of sweet or spicy. Gotcha. Wow. All right. And then my last question is, what is one piece of advice either you've learned that you want to pass on or someone gave to you that was like very effective? So one piece of advice I got that I think is really good is when you've hired somebody and you know in your gut that it's not working and they're not right for the team, just make the decision and remove them. Just do it. Even if it's like three weeks on the job and you're like, eek. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. You kind of know in your gut you know when you know, and yeah. I feel like it's easy to talk yourself out of that feeling and don't just make the decision. Okay. I'm going to take that advice. <laughs> I, I still <laughs> could do a better job sometimes taking that advice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was Daniela, the co-founder of Bobble Bar. Thank you for listening as always. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>